two weeks ago in Iowa. We had a great time in Iowa. 40, 40 degrees below zero. We won the Iowa caucuses by the largest margin in the history of the caucus. Donald Thank Trump you. is having the time of his life, sweeping all Thank before you. him in the Republican primaries with emphatic victories in Iowa and New Hampshire. As his campaign juggernaut rolls on, it looks almost certain he'll be facing Joe Biden in November. The choice is clear. Donald Trump's campaign is about him, not America, not you. The president certainly has enough on his plate as he weighs up the options in response to deadly attacks on a U.S. base in Jordan and the tinderbox that in the Middle East threatens to explode at any moment. That raises questions of how either candidate would affect hotspots around the world and America's global role. So all eyes on either side of the Atlantic are on the race for the White House this year. And while Trump maintains a small lead in the national polls, Biden is desperately trying to keep hold of the electoral coalition that brought him to power four years ago. The stakes could hardly be higher. Welcome to Power Play from Politico, where we talk to some of the world's most powerful people on both sides of the Atlantic. I'm Anne McElvoy, and this week we talk to two leading pollsters about the state of play in a vital race for the White House, upon which so much in America and the world beyond depends. Joining me from Washington, D.C. are Jim Hobart, partner at Public Opinion Strategies. He's worked on many successful Republican campaigns. Hi there, Jim. Good morning. And Margie O'Meara, principal at the Democratic polling firm GBAO, 2022's Pollster of the Year, coincidentally. Congratulations, belatedly, and welcome. Thank you. Good morning. So let's start by taking stock of where we are in this exciting primary season. Do you both think that barring a court ruling, probably in the Supreme Court, Donald Trump is going to be the Republican nominee, Jim. Yeah, I, I would think actually the primary season has been somewhat not exciting, right? It, it looks like Donald Trump will win every state on, on the Republican side as things look now. Barring a, a material change, as we like to say, Trump will likely be the, the presumptive nominee after South Carolina. Nikki Haley isn't able to win in her home state, and certainly the polls show her down there considerably right now. I think that that'll be the end of the road for her, most likely, and we'll move right into the general election. Margie, do you see it the same way, or does Nikki Haley have some chance of pulling it back? I, I think there are a couple of things are true. I think, first, it seems clear that Trump has a, an advantage. It may be, it seems likely to be an insurmountable advantage for any other candidate in the primary, and that's been true this whole primary season. At the same time, despite that advantage, has he been able to lock up the Republican primary as decidedly as one would if you are entering the general election from a place of strength. Other folks who would to try to do such a thing to try to run again in, in a primary past presidents would, if you could try to imagine it, actually fare much better than I think Trump has. I mean, if you look at the folks in New Hampshire where, you know, he won decisively, but among independents who can vote in a primary in New Hampshire, um, those folks voted for Nikki Haley, suggesting that there are problems with Republican-leaning independents that he's going to need in a general election. If you look at what folks who are listening to this can't see is that behind Jim, there's 
a poster that says Reagan, Reagan, Reagan. <laughs> and if you had Reagan, if you can imagine a scenario where Ronald Reagan was running in a primary after, say, one term, would he have done better in that primary than Donald Trump? And I think the answer to that is decidedly yes. So what's your Reagan, Reagan, Reagan poster telling you in answer to that question, Jim? Uh, well, when it does, it's actually it's a reminder. It's talking about some disparate groups that, that were supportive of Reagan, so unsurprisingly. So it's a reminder to me to to not take any voter for granted when I'm working on a campaign. But but no, you you know that that is the the Nikki Haley case, right? Is that hey, you know what, Donald Trump, you were the the former president, you're very popular in the party, but at the same time, I just came. You only got you know fifty some odd percent in New Hampshire, uh, so th- that's why I'm I'm still here, right? There's clearly an appetite in the primary electorate for for an alternative. And she wants to be that alternative. Now, now the question is, how long can she viably continue to be that alternative, right? Eventually, you, you have to win a state. And, you know, to get really down on the brass tacks of the primary process, you have to start picking up delegates. And if there's no sign she's able to do that, despite there being an appetite in some part of the party for an alternative, the, the path starts to close off for her. So let's just make a working assumption here and much could go differently as we've touched on. But let's assume that the the focus is going to be on the chances of Donald Trump versus Joe Biden for the White House. So the only fact, dangerously light on facts, (laughs) this discussion so far, the only one I can put on the table is the average of the last five national polls shows Trump on 46 percent, Biden on 43. Just before I flip over, Margie. Do you broadly accept that? I think that looks to you like where you think opinion is at the moment, or would you question that? I mean, it makes sense to me that the polls show that the vote is essentially tied. The difference between 46 and 43, while it matters on Election Day, that's a real difference in terms of ballots. It's not as much of a real difference in terms of a poll, even if you're looking at an average of polling, because you're talking about states versus a national poll, battleground states and so on, plus the margin of error in polls, that to me is a race that is essentially tied. The question is, what happens when you look at the totality of everything in the Democratic views on Democrats and Joe Biden and views on Republicans and Donald Trump? And there it is not like a three point advantage for Republicans at all. You have those polling out today showing that voters feel that Republicans in Congress are focused on the wrong things. Trump is net unfavorable, much like Biden is net unfavorable. It's not that Trump is emerging, as we just discussed, a hero welcome back from his sabbatical. Um, views toward him have not changed, and he is not making any effort to turn over and appeal to folks who were not with him in the past. Jim, see it the same way or differently? Yeah, you know, what I would say is I echo a lot of what, what Marjorie says, and, and to further her analogy is if we want to continue the sports, we're, we're kind of in the first city, right? We're the first city of a baseball game, and I, I do think that the majority of polling, both at the national level and the state level, shows Donald Trump having the advantage right now. But at the same time, there is a long way to go. Uh, there's always a long way to go at this point in the campaigns, but we have a very unique situation where we may or may not have court cases involving Donald Trump. It's This is going to be an election like no other, partially because, you know, putting the court cases aside, the other unique thing is, at least as it stands right now, there is a significant number of Americans who wish we had different choices, right? When we ask a poll question, do you wish that the race was not going to be a rematch between Joe Biden and Donald Trump? A lot of voters say yes, which is a, a pretty unique dynamic. We'll see how that shifts. It, it tends to be that when when the reality of the situation comes, voters start to say, okay, well, this is what we got, right? So you may see that number come down. And as a Republican, what makes me nervous 
is what keeps me up at night is a lot of this data, uh, even though at the top line level it's positive for Republicans, it looks a lot like what we saw in 2022. And uh, what we saw in 2022 is despite Biden's low approval ratings, despite some negative economic numbers, Republicans didn't have quite the same, the, the type of night that we would we hoped for and that a lot of people expected. And uh, a lot of Margie's candidates would, and that's why she went pulse for the year. Um, but it is, you know, that that's what makes me nervous, right? Is how can we be sure that this isn't going to be 2022 redux where because of voters' concerns on abortion, uh, because of voters' concerns about what we term in, in my office threats to democracy and the reason that the way that Democrats talk about that, it, it, are we going to end up, you know, November 2024, the day after Election Day, be like, wow, you know, it happened again. Let's talk about this state level because presidential elections are won in those battleground states, the Pennsylvanias, Ohio, Florida, Georgia, etc. I'm just wondering if you have the same sense of the kind of the pecking order and likelihood here of how the candidates are doing. So maybe to each of you pick a, a battleground that you think is particularly interesting, Jim. Well, I think the big four, at least the thing stands right now, are Arizona, Georgia, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. I think that is where you will see the most focus from all four candidates, at least right now. Uh, sometimes one of those states will, will come off the board and you'll have another one pop up like a Michigan or a Nevada. But I think especially given you're going to have center races in three of those four states, there's going to be an incredible amount of, amount of focus on, on at least Pennsylvania, Arizona, and Wisconsin. There are three super, super competitive states. You know, Pennsylvania and Wisconsin have have some similarities. Arizona a little bit different, being a Sunbelt state, but I think that's that's your battleground. Margie, your top four? I like that. I mean, I think that makes sense. I mean, the board, the map will for sure include those and as well as others. It's important to make sure that, you know, the campaign is competitive across the board. And I think what differentiates those states or what's important to think about those states is that, you know, Wisconsin is very white in terms of its demographic makeup. Arizona has a very large Latino population. Georgia has a large African-American population. Pennsylvania has, you know, it has some diversity in its cities. It's kind of in between, you know, between some of those. And so they all have kind of different compositions and different media market structure. Some states have one very dominant market, like media market, like Arizona and Georgia have one big city that kind of dominates. And then Wisconsin and Pennsylvania have a couple different markets that vie for attention. And those are different ways that the campaigns will really think about these states and and look at how they prioritize these four versus others and markets within the states. And I think the thing to remember, too, is that in these states, Democrats have had a lot of success recently. The, the one thing that I would add that is kind of the central tension, and I'll cut to the chase here, is that on one hand, like Biden's numbers are terrible, right? His approval rating is in the 30s. Like, that is a fact. But on the other hand, Republicans just aren't winning very many elections. So it's like, you know, you can sit here and be like, well, Biden's in the 30s. And it's like, well, you know what? He was in the low 40s in 2022, and we lost the vast, vast majority of competitive races at the federal level. You know, he was in the mid-30s, and we lost a governor's election in Kentucky, and we came really close to losing the governor's election in Mississippi, right? So it's like, and then we've lost these Supreme Court races in places like Wisconsin, Pennsylvania. So for me, as, as nice as it is to wake up and be like, wow, Biden's really a 36 it'd be a lot nicer to start seeing some wins on election day. So so that's what makes me nervous in, in 2024 and why Biden's approval ratings, while bad, kind of gives me cold comfort at this point. You're clearly a glass half full kind of guy, Jim, just on a first <laughs> acquaintance. So I'm going to just, I'm going to actually change what I was going to ask both of you and slightly ask you to look to the weaknesses 
of where you think your kind of preferred outcome or party outcome is here. So to Margie, where do you see the weakness of the Democrats? Uh, Jim said, well, Biden's numbers, uh, popularity numbers are low. But on the other hand, that may not be, be fatal for him. But if there is a sort of core weakness to where Joe Biden is now looking into this year, as you see it through the polling, let's remember that we're keeping polling in mind here as well as our, our personal preferences. Where do you see the weak point? Yeah, I think what befuddles me, and I know it befuddles, I know I'm not the only one, right? This is something that lots of people have been looking at, which is the way people have viewed the reco- our recovery, our economic recovery. Now, for sure, people are struggling economically, but some things like gas prices and some prices of food and eggs, those things have, have improved over the, you know, jobs, uh, the unemployment, those things have improved over the last year or two. And there's some awareness of this, but there are folks who feel very pessimistic and and dismiss some of these things like drop in gas prices and so on. And so I think that that's a challenge. Now, we've seen some improvement over the last few months in consumer confidence. That's improved. That's been a, you know, a, a market improvement, but it is not really where ideally you'd want it to be. So I think just trying to make the case and explain and talk about Biden accomplishments in terms of investment in infrastructure and investment in uh, manufacturing jobs and, you know, helping people with inflation reduction, it it caps on uh, prescription drug costs and so on. Those are things that people are beginning to hear, but only just beginning to hear. And so I think continuing to make the case and explain what's been happening while also acknowledging that there's still more to do and that people are still feeling, you know, feeling a struggle is something that, you know, is a challenge. I mean, honestly, it's a challenge facing everybody. Squeeze point for you. Is it possible that the problem is the candidate? That all of those, that they're resistant to good news because they think the candidate, we haven't said it yet, I'm surprised it's taken so long to come up, uh, is too old. And he's just not nailing it in the sense of looking like he could get through the next term and be the next president. And that creates a kind of uncertainty about those other things, which may be fantastic externalities to bring to the table. But in the end, particularly in the presidential system, as you both know better than anyone, you know, they're looking at the individual. I think it's too pat to say because of Biden's age, people don't recognize that gas prices have dropped. That doesn't track to me completely. I think what it really is that people feel pessimistic about the country, that they feel that our partisanship, our toxic partisanship, the way that or if we feel divided is something that has it, it still exists and people worry about that. And then they tune into the media. And really, I'm not even talking about just conservative media, which obviously distorts things, but even mainstream media has reported bad economic news rather than positive economic news. And so you take all that together and people plus also growing inequality that's been happening now for you know decades. And so you put all that together and it makes people feel like we're not moving on the right track. And, and that's irrespective of Biden. That's, those are things that are outside the Biden administration's control. Jim, uh, on your side, what do you think the, the weaknesses are? Yeah, I, I think our party's biggest challenge is we are still grappling with the way to handle with the abortion issue post Roe v. Wade. Uh, I think it, it is not something that we have been able to find an answer to, quote unquote, for a variety of reasons. But it, it is still an issue where in a lot of ways we are we are perceived. And I want to be careful to say that because I think you can kind of look at some polling and be like, well, actually the Republican position or some Republicans position on abortion is quite popular. But perception is reality. 
and, and Republican candidates are perceived as being out of step with the electorate on uh, on abortion and not where they are. There there is a a view, especially among voters that that decide elections, that that when you say you are pro life, that means that you are basically we're banning abortion. And because Republicans have described themselves as pro-life for so long, that is a challenge in trying to get into the nuance of, well, actually what I'm for is X, Y, or Z is a argument or a debate that, that we are consistently losing. It. Did, Jim, did you read my question about Biden age and perceived frailty as fair or Pat, as Margie put it, and given that both candidates are of a, a certain age, but I don't think I'm, I'm I'm saying anything completely out of the ordinary to say that there seems to be more of a, a perception that that it is more of a problem for Joe Biden than Donald Trump. If I were a Democrat, I, that would absolutely panic me, because the reality is is not only does not only is he 81, I believe, or he'll be 81 on election day, he he looks like he's 81, right? And, and I think that is something that, again, that, that's something that, that we see in focus groups, right? When you bring up his age, there's a fear that, that he's just not up to the job. And the other thing is, when, when you talk about you know the positive economic news, because of his age, he's not able to barnstorm the country and, and tell the story that he wants to tell, right? They, and Democrats are fairly open about this, at least on, you know, they don't put their names on it, but in news stories, they're like, yeah, you know, he can only do so much, right? We can't fly him to California and then fly him to DC and fly him to Florida and fly him to the border. So that that's a, puts a limitation on him too. So I, so I think that is, you know, the reason that it's so worrisome is because there's nothing you can do about it, right? Uh, he's, he's not going to get younger overnight. There's an inscrutable expression on Margie's face as I'm looking at her on the, uh, the camera just to sort of finish off on this age profile of, of candidates. Any other thoughts on that either, to address to either of them, Margie? I mean, look, Trump, is had some major moments of showing that he is confused and confusing Nikki Haley and Nancy Pelosi. I mean, there are a variety of things. I think when it comes to Biden, I understand why people say this. Ultimately, he has a record. This is not theoretical. He is doing the job and has accomplishments. And so I think that's important to reiterate. I understand why people raise it, but I think for folks who are going to be looking at this alike, they don't have to imagine whether he's up for the job. They see him as doing a job. And so communicating what that job is, is critical to any campaign. We'll take a short pause and age gracefully now and be back with you after this. We've, I think, dealt with or broadly dealt with the economy and how that's that's playing in but of course immigration and the border and how that is being handled does look like still being the very hot button issue as we go through the year what does the polling really tell us is is it absolutely clear let's go to jim on this first that if i know your views on that i can probably guess which candidate i'm going to go for or is there a bit of a nuance here that we do know that voters often say one thing about immigration and asylum and then do another or at least can entertain a number of views at the same time, depending on how the question is put. That must be very tricky if you're a pollster. Sure. Yeah. I I think that, you know, touching on immigration, what what we consistently see is that the voters who are most concerned about, most focused about immigration are are base Republicans. That is goes back years and years and years. What we are seeing now, especially given all the attention to paid to what's currently going on the border is is that is rising as an issue in, in the minds of more more soft partisans, independents, folks like that, and then you're, you're not seeing it percolate quite so much uh, among liberals and Democrats. 
at this point. But things can shift very quickly, right? Like it used to be, if your top issue was abortion, you would typically were voting for the Republican candidate. After Roe v. Wade, that flipped. People who on the Republican side who said their top issue was abortion was like, hey, that's settled. We won. And then Democrats said, whoa, 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 whoa. No, no, no. Now that's my top issue. It's so, it's so you see shift on the issue agenda like that really fairly frequently. Maji? You know, immigration is a very complicated issue, and there's lots of different ways to ask it. So it's not as simple as like immigration equals X Republican or Y Democrat, um, because there's a question about the value of immigration and, and how do people feel about immigrants? And that's one type of question. There is how do you feel about what we call dreamers? So those are kids who were brought to this country as undocumented kids then have gone on to graduate school and serve in the military, pay taxes, get a job. Like, should those folks have a path to citizenship? And and there's overwhelming support for that. So there's a full range of questions about immigration. And we lose nuance when we just say immigration, immigration equals base republic. I know that's not what Jim was saying, but I think, you know, there are folks on the right who use immigration as a code to just open all kinds of you know, nasty language. Um, And that turns off a lot of people, not just Latinos in these critical battleground states, but lots of voters who feel like this is not how we should talk about people. Like, why are we talking like this? So that's different from saying, should we have, you know, some sort of order and rules about how asylum works? Should we have a process for people who are in this country? Like, those are all different kinds of topics. And so that's what makes it tricky for pollsters. The international situation, particularly in the in the, the Middle East, in the Red Sea, Israel, Gaza, and what's been happening in the Red Sea, and of course, those attacks on the US base in Jordan uh, and deaths of some servicemen, it just brought that back into, I think, awareness and perhaps to the edge of this sort of sense of, well, what are these candidates really going to do about this as, as well as the conduct of the war in Ukraine? Now, traditionally, we've tended to say, well, this is all very interesting. We're fascinated by all of this at uh, places like Politico and in the debate beyond. But really, that's not what it's going to come down to in the race for the White House. Do you think the world being as it is this year in particular, that's changed? Jim? Look, I, I think foreign policy is definitely going to be more of an issue than I would have said it would have been this time last year. There's no doubt about that. I think that there's more focus, especially among Republicans and Republican elected officials on, on this situation in Israel. And there's very clear belief among majority of Republicans that Israel is our most important ally and is, is a country that we are always going to support. How meaningful that all plays out in the election? Look, when, when we look at polling, it is still dominated by the economy and rising prices, you know, economic related issues as, as the top issue, followed by right now immigration and border security, and then, you know, further on down, foreign policy issues, abortion, things like that. But what I think is important is in post election work that we do, what we often see is that, yeah, economic issues, that's number one. But what you see a lot of voters do is they say, okay, economic issues, well, I don't know what either party is going to do on the economy. I don't trust either party on the economy. And so they they go down their own personal issue agenda, and then they get to an issue where the lines are a little brighter, whether that be abortion or whether that be foreign policy, and they say, hey, okay, this is going to be the issue that ultimately decides my vote. So while I don't think you're going to see it popping up in terms of the you know the overall what top issue number, failing American troops getting involved, which is, which is always a possibility, I think it could be vote determinative in some of these closest swing states. 
uh, support for Israel, strong support for, for Israel, but in a very difficult situation, evolving situation, and of course, great concern about Gaza and, and the plight of people in Gaza. Is that a tricky area for Joe Biden also in terms of keeping that coalition together of progressives left and right? I think the truth of the matter is we don't know yet what the impact will be for how voters think about it. Um, there is just simply a lag, a time lag between when things happen overseas and when American voters decide that that's, you know, a th- part of their thinking. That said, you know, there are people paying attention to this and that maybe we're not paying attention to this region before. So I think it just remains to be seen what the impact will be for voters, particularly younger voters, but for a variety of different voters. I'm going to do very quick fire last questions. So if we could just go to and fro and it's going to be pretty quick. So let's go. Will the polls be accurate? This is something a lot of people often write in and sort of ask this. Uh, have they really got better or are you there to be confounded this year, both of you? My and Margie's will. <laughs> Other pollsters I won't speak for. Um, <laughs> no, look, uh, polling is, is, is certainly getting more challenging, but, but people who do, or Margie and I do, make every single effort to be as accurate as possible. And I think that they will give us a good idea of, w- of what's going to happen some November. And who's going to w- who's going to win, Jim? And then we're going to flip it. <laughs> I'm not getting into that. I learned my, my I learned my lesson in 2016. I do not make public predictions on who's going to win things. <gasps> oh, that, that sounds like you had a tricky <laughs> 2016 on that, Margie. What's your, what's your view on that? <laughs> um, I you know look, pollsters spend an enormous amount of time as an industry trying to figure out how we can learn from past elections going forward, and each electorate is very different. I wish that there was a button that just said you know, press here to get it all exactly right every time. And that doesn't exist because we're trying to capture a universe of people that doesn't exist yet. And people can tell you that they're going to vote and they don't know, like they're doing, they're making their own guess. And so we're trying to use a variety of things, region, motivation, political enthusiasm, political identity, age, education, different kinds of metrics, like to make sure, you know, how people said they voted in 2020, all these things to really assess what we think the electorate is going to be. And it's based on also a variety of, you know, changing features and technologies and how you contact people. So there's a lot involved. Well, funnily enough, that was going to be my last quick uh, sort of reflection for you to both. What do you ask or ask in a way now or guide your your teams to ask in polling that you didn't ask a few years ago? I'll just stay with Margie and then round off with Jim. We have a couple questions that we, I mean, one, we now always ask, how did you vote for president in 2020? We ask, how important is your political identity to you? That's a question that came out of a study we did with four other um, Democratic polling firms about trying to improve response rates and reduce response error. So that's something that we had. Um, We also add motivation. How motivated are you to vote in the election? And that's just to see what differences there are by party and how because motivation. I mean, people may still vote even if, you know, will still vote even if they're slightly less motivated, but it gives you some sense of how your base is feeling. And it's important for looking at some of these audiences that are really important for turnout, you know, like younger voters. So I end up in one of your sample groups. And if I were an American citizen, Jim, what would I be being asked that I maybe wouldn't have been asked or sounded out about a few years ago? Yeah, so so we ask a lot of questions very similar to to Margie. The, the other thing that we added last cycle and that we're continuing to ask that that is really really helpful is understanding how people watch television, for lack of a better word. We've added some questions that really identify: Are people reachable through cable television? Are they 
only reachable, you know, are they full cord cutters and they're reachable through ad-supported streaming services? Or are they only using non-ad-supported streaming services, which are things like Netflix, et cetera? And, and so really they're unreachable by traditional television ads of any sort. And then you have to try to reach them in a different way. So, so I think that's a way that we started a segment of the electorate that, that's different from what we were doing even in 2020. Thank you very much indeed to our pollsters extraordinaire. We can come back to you at the end of the, the year and see what happened to Jim and to Margie. Thank you. Thanks so much. Have a great day. That's all from this week's edition of Power Play. And if you'd like to get all of our episodes immediately when they publish, do go ahead and follow Power Play wherever you're listening. We're available on all major podcast platforms. The producer was Peter Snowden and the executive producer, Christina Gonzalez. I'm Anne McElvoy and thank you for listening to Power Play. <laughs>